Our reading today is from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding learning, and comp competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They are to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they are to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, of the, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and, and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. And at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they who that they were in better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths. God gave them learning God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke to them and among and among all of them none was found like Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah therefore they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of the king of Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God. Thank you, Caroline, for reading that. That was not an easy passage uh, with a lot of names. The book of Daniel is one that many of us are familiar with if we grew up in a church. We saw the flannel graphs of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, as the Veggie Tales called them. As we look at the book of Daniel, we're looking at Daniel and what it means to have faith in exile. One of the things that we need to know is a little bit of the background of this book before we enter into it for today. So what's happening here is Babylon, the great empire of the Middle East, has conquered Israel, surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem, and it has taken people into exile. This happened in a 587, 586 BC, and for decades, Israel was completely flattened and its key leaders were taken away. 
Babylon in the Bible was a uh, common uh, theme and motif actually throughout the book of the Bible or throughout the Bible. In Genesis, the Tower of Babel happens at Babylon where they wanted to make a great name for themselves. The psalmists talk about Babylon as a great evil and they're reflecting on the time in exile. Many of the prophets are predicting what's going to happen when God comes and takes them into exile under Babylon. And then several of the prophets like Daniel and Jeremiah write about that time in exile under the Babylonians. Even into the New Testament, we get Babylon as the great symbol of evil in the book of Revelation. So as David Kinnaman put it in, uh, in his book, Faith in Exile, Babylon is not just a city and a nation as it was for hundreds of years, a great power. It is also the symbol in the Bible of collective human pursuits in opposition to God. Everything in humanity against God can be described of as Babylon. The book of Daniel is a look into that time in exile. And one of the things I want us to be clear on is what it is not. The book of Daniel is not primarily a prophecy about what's going to happen next, like some fortune teller. The book of Daniel instead is the story of how God was faithful to his people as seen in the stories of Daniel and his friends in the first couple of chapters and would continue to be faithful in spite of the suffering that they were in. That God is sovereign over all. Even though Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the book, and Babylon seem like the great power, we see again and again God is truly sovereign. He is Lord of all, and he is directing all of history. And in that sense, the story of Daniel was a story of hope and encouragement for the exiles in Babylon and those who were later under Rome and for all believers of, of any stripe that have suffered under exile or feeling like the place they live is not the home that they were made for. But one of the challenges is the big question of Daniel. How do you have faith in exile? When you've been conquered, taken away, enslaved in a foreign country, what do you do? Do you separate and try to enclave yourself from uh, an alien culture? Do you assimilate, join in, make things easier for yourself? Or do you fight with all that you have? How do you follow Christ, we would ask today, in a pluralistic and unbelieving world, in an alien culture? One of the interesting parallels is in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing in the time that Daniel is writing. And the book of Jeremiah is about the coming downfall under the Babylonians. And then many of the chapters are while the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and many of the key leaders are in exile. And what you find is there's this one section that is a contrast of the prophets of Israel and Jeremiah talking about what to do when you're in Babylon. So there were many key leaders that were stolen and taken into exile. And the false prophets, who were Jews like, like Jeremiah and Daniel, they were saying, hey, just enclave yourself, keep away from all the Babylonians and all of their stuff, and pray against them, and God's going to come and destroy them. We are going to end up on top. But Jeremiah says that's not the case. This judgment is part of God's hand, and we're going to entrust it to him. And God's actually using the Babylonians in whatever way we, we have to think about that. We have to entrust where we are, 
the times that we're in into God's hands. And then Jeremiah says this passage that we've read before in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, that I think is a good setup for our whole look in the book of Daniel. This is what God says to those who were in exile, stolen from their country, and taken to Babylon. Don't enclave yourself off, hide from the culture. Don't avoid everyone. Don't try to get out or fight. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its, in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. But can you imagine being Daniel and his friends? I mean, the book of Daniel tells us what the plan was. Let me read that to you from Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Daniel and his friends had grown up in Jerusalem. They were in the courts of Jerusalem. They had been taught and raised up in, in the scriptures and in the nobility. They were wise and learned, but their whole life was in Jerusalem. When the Babylonians came, they lived through a horrible siege that killed many people that they knew. Probably their own families were killed. And then they were taken off in chains to Babylon to become people who were servants of the king. They had to be absolutely terrified. I mean, can you imagine? It, basically, they were trafficked. They were kidnapped and trafficked. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They had no authority over their bodies, their lives, their futures. It was a completely despairing situation. And described as youths means they were like 15, 17, 19. They're teenagers. Stolen, never again to see their family, their friends, their country. And who knows what's going to happen to them. Why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, the aim was to remove the political, intellectual, and cultural leaders of the next generation so that decades from now there would not be an uprising again. It was also to reform them, these key leaders, these young leaders, as Babylonians. We find out they give them new names, food, education, and careers, new vocations, in order to serve as the wise men and advisors to Nebuchadnezzar. But the ultimate aim, Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate aim in taking people into exile, especially these key leaders, was the national and cultural eradication of Israel. All the key leaders, those who would have established the traditions, who would build the new cultures, who would bring in the songs, the poetry, the theology, who would lead the nation, taken away, all gone. The cultural 
identity of Israel was being vanquished, along with its faith in Yahweh. What were Daniel and his three friends supposed to do? In fact, we should ask, what should they do or not do? What did they do and what didn't they do? It's interesting to see what they reject and what they accept when they enter into Babylon in its foreign alien culture. They don't reject everything, but they also don't accept everything. One of the things that we see is a protest that Daniel and the boys make about food in chapter 1. It says that the king was going to feed them from his food, his meat and his wine. And in verse 8 we read, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So why didn't Daniel want to eat the food of the king? Was he just kind of a you know, stroppy young man or he didn't like the flavors of the Babylonian food? It's obviously more likely that it was breaking with the the food laws of the covenant, that there were foods that were not kosher, if you want to talk about it in modern ways of talking about it, that there were foods that would make him unclean to worship God in the temple, if the temple even existed. Foods like pork or shellfish. And so maybe it was that, and then in likelihood that it was included. But a second reason is because very often the food that a king ate, the meat that they ate, had been sacrificed in idol worship. And so to participate in the food to, to Daniel was both to break the laws of God in eating unclean food and to participate in the worship of a false god, an idol. And this is one of the questions we get through this, this issue of the food. It's who will you worship and obey? Nebuchadnezzar? His gods? Or Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel? What's interesting is how, how Daniel and the other guys protest, what they did and didn't do. In verse 8, we read that Daniel asks the officer in charge of them, hey, can we have other food? And he actually negotiates with them. In verse 12 and 13, we see the negotiation. Daniel says, test your servants for 10 days, just 10 days. Let us be given vegetables and water instead of meat and wine from the king's table. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So even while Daniel and the other guys are rejecting the uh, pagan idolatrous food of the Babylonians, he does so by asking a th permission. And even in doing so, he's willing to submit if he's denied. It's a simple test. And, and he even says, basically, like, if it fails, if we look terrible, we'll go back to eating the meat that we didn't want to eat. But in that sense, he's entrusting it to God. There's no pragmatic reason to think that, that the vegetables would make him stronger than eating the meat. But he's entrusting the outcome to God and that the officer will see a difference and they'll be allowed to continue to faithfully worship God and not defile their conscience. And this, of course, goes back to one of the other themes of the book of Daniel and one of the things they also reject again and again. It is the gods of the Babylonians, the idols of Babel. And so in chapter 1, it's seen in the food. In chapter 
two, I mean, in chapter three and in chapter six, it's seen in a great idol that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes of himself and asks everyone to bow down to. And in chapter six, it's Daniel praying to God that gets him in trouble. But again and again, Daniel and his three friends refuse to bow to false gods. So at that point, they draw a line, even to the point of death, as happens as a possibility for the three guys that don't bow down and are thrown into the furnace, and Daniel when he's thrown into the lion's den. They say, in the end, this is as far as I can go. But again, when they reject the, the cultural gods, they do so on conscience and following God, and they do so willing to die in the process, not to fight, but to give up their lives for the sake of following God. So they reject the food, ultimately rejecting the gods, but what do they accept? It's interesting what they accept because it's actually pretty profound, the things they're willing to accept from a false and foreign culture. The first thing is they accept new names. In verse seven, it says that Daniel was given a new name, Belteshazzar. Now, it, it's sort of a strange thing to just kind of say, I don't want to be called that, I want to be called this. But what we find is that in those two names are things that are very important to that ancient culture. Both who names you gives some sense of uh, belonging and community. So is it Daniel's father who names him, or is it Nebuchadnezzar and his officials who name him? But the more powerful thing is the way that these names are defined, because a name was defined, um, it had meaning behind it. And the name Daniel meant God is my judge. God is my ruler, if you would. The name Belteshazzar meant Baal protects the king. Now, what does Daniel do with that? When the, the officer comes in and says, your name's not Daniel anymore, it's Belteshazzar. What Daniel does is he accepts both. He calls himself Daniel, and you see it again and again throughout the book of Daniel. And yet, he responds to the name Belteshazzar in public settings, because that's essentially his role. And this is the difference between identity and vocation, the way Daniel is seeing it. Daniel's identity is in God. God is his judge, not Nebuchadnezzar, not the officials. God alone is his judge, and he answers to God. And when he puts his trust in God and finds his identity in God as Daniel, he knows this, no matter what happens to him or what names they give him, his identity as God's and under God cannot be taken away. But he's willing to bend on his vocation or calling. His calling is to be an advisor to the king. That's his career. That's the work that's in front of him. And in that sense, he is a Belteshazzar. He is the one who tries to protect the king, even though he doesn't believe in Baal. So he's willing to be called that even as he identifies internally and spiritually and with his friends as Daniel. A second thing that Daniel and his friends accept is a new education. And in a sense, what they were doing was they were being re-educated, right? They go into Babylon with the idea of being that they would be mentally re-enculturated into the culture, the ideas, the thought of Babylon. And so they learn a lot of things. They learn probably because the Babylonians were very learned peoples in that ancient world, biology and astronomy and math and engineering. They also learn a foreign language. They learn history and politics and literature. They learned all the knowledge and culture of Babylon and saw all of its greatness, all of its collected knowledge, all of its wisdom. But you know what they also learned? They also learned the religion astrology, divination, 
magic. They actually were willing to enter into learning that. And as we learn later on, Daniel understands it better than the chief magicians and astrologers in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. He understands their religious system and their false practices better than they do. So he's willing to go to, if you would, a secular university to study hard, to learn it better than they understand it themselves, and to gain all the knowledge and wisdom he possibly can. And we read the result of that willingness to step into that was God was with them in it. Verse 17 and 20 read this. God gave them Daniel and his three friends, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So God empowers them to be good students. It's not that they just kind of knew it all of a sudden, like the Holy Spirit empowered them to just know all this stuff. They actually studied really hard and God was with them in that, enabling them to take the knowledge they had learned and apply it in wisdom to what is true and right and good. And in that sense, they took all the learning of humanity and the power of God and brought them together to fulfill their calling which is essentially the last thing that they accepted of Babylon. They accepted a new vocation, a new career, and a new calling. They were being raised up to be in the courts of Jerusalem, but instead they are going to serve as wise men in the courts of a pagan, ruthless dictator. Think about that. They were now being called to serve a king they disagreed with, who completely went against everything they believed in. And yet they did. They did not subvert him. They did not give bad advice, hoping it would ruin him. They didn't try to overthrow him. Instead, they gained his trust. They had integrity and wisdom, and they gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And I believe they did so because they were fulfilling what Jeremiah, through the Lord, wrote down, saying, build, plant, Seek the welfare of the city to which God has put you. And they saw that this was a way that they could seek the shalom, the welfare of Babel, Babylon, and of the nations that were under it. It's definitely challenging to think about what you reject and what you accept and how you do it back then and in our culture today. And so if we're jumping to today, the question is this. How do we live faithfully in a pluralistic and unbelieving world? How do we have faith in our exile? And the two things I'm seeing in Daniel 1 are remember your true home and seek the welfare of your city of exile. Remember your true home and seek the welfare of your city of exile. I think in order to do that, we first, especially nowadays, need to understand the culture of our city of exile. It's what Daniel and his friends did when they went and studied trying to understand Babylon. You know, what I've seen and experienced in talking to people and just looking at things that I'm reading, many Christians have been anxious about the rapid changes that they are seeing in moral standards or religious beliefs or politics, things that have happened over the past five or 15 or 20 years. But my take is this, that's too narrow of a view of the 
of where we are as a culture. It's looking at the symptoms rather than the underlying disease. And it's um, pointing to what is happening instead of understanding the layer beneath, which is why it's happening. So one of the things we have to remember is Daniel and his friends were taken from their culture of their youth, but they remembered it. They actually had lived in Israel, in Jerusalem, for their first 15, 17, 18 years. So they could remember it. But we, most of us, have lived in this culture always. We've lived in this way of thinking that we have in the West and in the modern world our whole lives. And my take is this, the issue culturally for us in exile is not the past five years or the past 20. It actually goes back hundreds of years. You have to see the trajectory of history to understand it. And here's what I would, why I'm saying that is because my experience in kind of looking at what is underneath where we are at the cultural moment is that most modern Christians and modern unbelievers share the same foundational assumptions. Hear that again. Most modern Christians and modern unbelievers share the same foundational assumptions about how you know anything, believe anything. It's what um, cultural philosophers call, I'm going to use a strange word, social imaginary. A social imaginary is the way people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, how they act intuitively in relation to it. It's kind of the, the reality as we think about it. Well, this is obvious. This is what we know. This is the way it is. So it's the way a fish looks at the ocean. A fish doesn't think outside of the ocean. It doesn't imagine what it looks like to live in New York City. A fish can't comprehend or even perceive of the idea of going to the moon. A fish knows the world of the ocean and assumes that's all there is. Christianity calls us to see ourselves not as fish, but as eagles. Yes, occasionally we have to dive into that water, but it is not our true home. Don't live underwater. You're meant to fly. Live in that even as you enter into the water. But in order to do so, you need to understand what the water is. When we grasp the underlying cultural assumptions, not just the issues, the present day issues, when we grasp the underlying cultural assumptions and know God and know God's ways, then, then we can faithfully celebrate or critique our culture. There are good things in every culture that we should lift up and say, this is good. And there are things that we should critique in every culture. There are things we should accept and reject. And even knowing how to do that involves understanding what's beneath and in the culture of your exile. So the first thing is understand the culture of your city of exile. The second is remember the God of your true home. Remember the God of your true home and know his ways. You know, God's ways are not intuited. They're revealed. So what I mean is this. I think oftentimes in modern West, we think that our view of God is true and right. And, but we confuse it with what I think of as good, what I want to be true, what everyone knows to be right or, tr or true, what all the people that I hang out with agree with. Every site that I go to, 
Everyone on my social media feed agrees with me. Therefore, this is my view of God or what's right or good or true or not. But Daniel, what we understand from Daniel is that for the first 17 years of his life, he was trained in God's law, God's word, in scripture. That's what would have happened as a nobility in Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. Um, But by the time he gets to Babylon, you know what he no longer has? He no longer has scripture. He no longer has a temple to worship in and priests. He no longer has a worshiping community. But he remembered and he practiced. And he remembered and he practiced and he reflected on and had memorized God's word and God's truth. And he had a relationship with this God. He knew God intellectually and he knew God emotionally and spiritually. He knew God in his mind and in his heart. And that cultivated the ability to discern what was wrong and what was okay in the culture and how to approach both. We are people who need to seek knowledge of God and knowing God. We need to know God's word, theology, who God is and what he says about himself. Again, God's truth is not intuited so much as it is revealed. And he has revealed himself in scripture and in Jesus Christ. And so we go to that again and again. But as David Kinneman points out in his book, Faith for Exiles, our primary source of information and wisdom and understanding is our phone, not God's word, not the community of faith. We need to cultivate a mind and a heart that is shaped in the truths of who God is and what he says. And that needs to be associated with knowing God relationally, being loved by him and knowing you're loved, experiencing his presence in your life, his peace, listening to him, relating to him, praying to him, being with people who are worshiping him together and being formed theologically and spiritually in that worshiping community. When we know God in his ways, then we also find our identity in him. We need to find our identity in our true home, which is in God. Our culture says, look inside of yourself to find yourself. Whatever you feel, think, and want, that's who you are. Go for it. Christianity, the gospel says, you will find your identity when you find God. You will find your identity in your true home and your true maker. And what he says about you, this is what Daniel was doing. The Bible says, we are made in the image of God. That's who you are, a man or a woman made in God's image. The Bible says we are sinful, broken, but we are loved because of the cross. And as a result, we are children of God, heirs of eternity. We are loved beyond imagination, and we are being called to be made into the image of Christ. That's our identity. That's our true home. Understand the culture of your city of exile. Second, remember the true the God of your true home. And third, seek the welfare of the city of exile in which you live. This means we're called to engage our culture. We're called to engage our culture no matter what is happening in it. And this means, at least according to Daniel and Jeremiah, not attacking or avoiding and hiding, nor assimilating and becoming just like the culture. 
Rather, to seek the welfare of the city is to enter into places of influence in politics and business and in intellectual circles and in cultural influential circles and schools and lawmakers and law keepers and law enforcement and, and in your neighborhood, in your homes and in your community and the way you live. It's to be influences for God's kingdom purposes in whatever city you live in to seek the common good, beauty, order, flourishing, shalom, God's peace and wholeness for the poor and the weak and the lonely and the nation and the world. And to be known as people, homes and churches of humility and generosity. like Daniel and his friends were. In this cultural moment that I'm reminded of this past week and over this past challenging year, my hope is in the king and his kingdom. I love this place, but this is not my true home. My hope is in his eternal kingdom. And our calling is to pray for and seek the welfare of our place of exile. In other words, love the city because you are loved by God. But love the city as God loves it. Let's pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily serve you, that we might love the people and place of our exile and serve them for your kingdom purposes. Amen.